From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast, with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT, with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 206 of the Killing It Killing Podcast. Jeez, are, are you impressed that I remembered how to introduce this podcast? We even take breaks and we still have the rhythm. Like we we come right back in, we pregame for 20 minutes and warm ourselves up. It's all the same. Welcome back. You know how they say it takes 30 days to create a habit? It takes 206 episodes to make it completely impossible <laughs> to forget how to do that. Well, I, I did freak out because I was like, uh, okay, wait, uh, I'm the one who starts, right? <laughs> You are the one that starts. But I ask a question, and I'm gonna, we're going to have a quick rapid fire. You're forced to pick a 2024 trend that isn't AI. What's now most important? Uh, sadly, for, for 2024, I'm going to say it's money probably related to private equity. We'll get back to that later. He's previewing topic three. Ryan, what's yours? <laughs> so I will go with... A business operations topic, uh, collaboration within vendor ecosystems, because everybody is talking about it. And by the way, nobody actually does it. So don't believe them with the marketing slicks, but uh, we'll, we'll hit that. Oh, I'm going to tease that. I've got a future of distribution video dropping on my on my feeds uh, before year end. So mine then is going to actually be, I think it's still going to be labor. I think the actual issue is going to be uh, training and the availability of labor in the IT space because I don't see that getting any better. I actually seeing it get worse without using the two-letter acronym that I just banned. I think that's that's a contributing factor. So it's that. But there you go. Let's uh, Before we dive in, this episode brought to you by a class I'm teaching starting in January. Navigating Emerging Technologies for MSPs. We're going to put the link in the show notes to sign up. It's a five-week class. Going to walk through the methodology that I use for analyzing technologies and how you can apply that in your business to find trends and be effective in your service provider business. Join me. It's going to be a lot of fun. First time I've ever taught a class uh, in this format, so it'll be, it'll be great fun. It's original stuff. I've never done this before, so uh, welcome aboard for the educational process. I'm expecting it to be a lot of fun and very educational. I'm going to dive us in with topic number one, guys. It is uh, a year plus since ChatGPT was unleashed on the world, and it's worth revisiting kind of now that we've been at this for a year, like what do you see the big impact and what has it changed in the way you're seeing services operations run? I will say a couple things. First of all, happy birthday, ChatGPT. Uh, you're one. Well done. <laughs> yeah, you're one. You, you did it. Um, but the uh, second thing is, I'm really impressed with how much people have embraced it first and sometimes embraced it more than their bosses want them to, more than the media thinks they should, you know, so forth and so on. But it's rare to have a new technology that people love out the gate. Right. And so far, it hasn't, I haven't seen it used in pornography at all. So it may be the first technology to not be driven by how it helps the porn. Industry. 
Oh, Carl, it's out. Oh, I, I'm. This is a this is a family friendly show, but uh, <laughs> let's just observe. By the way, that like as a quick aside, there's a lot of framework problems around it because some significant deepfake problems there. Student harassment happening with you know around that. Uh, Sex bots, AI bots for, for, for that. There's a whole set of use cases and market going on over there. It's been, you know, it is yet another one. But what I think is interesting about that is, is, is that it's paralleling where oftentimes we see that industry, the adult industry lead, particularly we saw it in video. We've seen it in some of the interactive features. It, it was driving it ahead. This, it feels like it's kind of concurrent with what we're seeing in the, in the major marketplace. So I thought, I think that's notable. You know, and I will observe that I think, so to Carl's point, and Dave, I think you might have been the one who said this a while back in one of our episodes, that it's a technology that we will say is from the masses, not from the professionals, right? Where the, the tool is not brought to you by your friends in the IT department, and then they train you on how and why to use this thing. It's humans that go out in the wild, and they find it, and they like it, and they create with it, and they bring it to work, and they say, hey... Is this reasonable? I'll say there are two fundamental observations that I have a year into this process. Number one is that while the technology absolutely hallucinates, it sounds more believable now than it did, right? Like you and I, a year ago, when we would open that thing up and it would ask it a question and it would tell you a lie, you would go, that's instantly a lie. I can absolutely tell that that's not true. It's getting better and it's partly grammar. It's partly style and, and the way that it writes, but that's something I think we still need to be paying attention to. My second observation is it was deliriously naive or intentionally misleading for anyone in the AI space to ever have characterized this as a not-for-profit for the benefit of all mankind. <laughs> Bullshit. That was always going to be a commercialized entity, and we all just saw the human resources issues that were going on with, uh, with the folks over at the board at, at OpenAI. Uh, it was always going to be a commercial entity, and that, I think, is the proper way to think of it. Not, how do we make this good for mankind, but how do we control the commercial impulse of this technology? What I've been the most interested in is, is to watch everything flow. Like everything is happening. Like we've got the regulation element of this. We've got business frameworks going around that. We've got ethical considerations. Like it almost feels like a technology that without coordination is getting rolled out very systematically and, and more thoughtfully than I might expect. By the way, there, there's, there's extremes on both sides, right? Like there, there's those that, you know, go at any any pace there's those that don't do anything because it's bad but but you see the mainstream of the conversation and it's very bounded generally pretty responsible <laughs> like it, it's pretty intelligent we've got legal frameworks on both sides of the pond that are that are coming together you know at, at whatever speed you'd expect from those governments but the answer isn't zero uh you've got companies rolling out their own frameworks the way they're looking at it I, I actually have to say like for for one year of a technology there's been a lot of ground covered that makes a lot of sense yet there's still a lot of upside like there's still so much work that can be done in this space why i'm continue to be intrigued by it well, and we on this show talked about ethics and AI for a year before chat G GPT was real. 
So, you know, it, it is one of the few technologies where that conversation was pretty mature by the time that there was a release date. Uh, and to just spurred by what Ryan was saying, I've been impressed with how many people have become creative because of this. You know, there's this always this fear, like the one thing people say, oh, it's going to eliminate jobs. No, it's going to eliminate jobs for people who don't use it, but it'll create jobs for those who do use it. And I've seen on YouTube and TikTok and so many places where people have just, their creativity has exploded because just like humans, uh, humans don't create anything we come by, right? It is a combinatorial thing that creates one thing, gets attached to a second thing, and now you've got a new device. That's where creativity happens in the human brain. We shouldn't expect the computer to do that any more slowly or uh, and do a worse job than we do. Uh, and so it allows people to say, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And out comes not one example, 32. And you pick the one you like, and you, then you create 32 more out of that, and uh, and it's shockingly fast. And Carl, I will I will completely echo that because it's creative in what we typically think of as creative, right? The arts, the entertainment, the whether it's writing or music, music or images. But I've also seen people use it in what I think are bona fide creative ways in business scenarios, right? We we spend a lot of time in our consulting practice, challenging people's plans and thinking like, are you sure that's the right way to go? Are you sure that that's how they're going to respond? What if they respond differently? You can use this technology now to do scenario testing in ways that are much more, as you said, Dave, patient, much more willing to go with my 11, 12, 13 iterations of that scenario and not get angry and, and stomp out of the room. It'll go with you, but boy, you can consider practical business questions. And we've actually used it in workshops with sales teams and with business owners. And to great effect, creativity, it's not just, this is the way we do it around here. Everybody get in line. It's, I don't know, let's test it and see what the options are. That's very exciting. And I, and I don't mind saying like, you know, when I think about, because everybody talks about the hallucinations, my quick comeback all the time is, yeah, because humans are perfect all the time. Like I think this is important to to, to remind everybody is is that we're we're not necessarily comparing to perfect. It's about where the risk tolerance is and putting it in the right places. You know, do I want an AI making decisions about, you know, nuclear weapons? No, not really, right? But I also don't necessarily always want humans doing that either. Uh, the the areas where understanding, you know, you're not putting it in a place where where the mis where every mistake will be critically important and where you're talking about ryan we're like you know there are bad ideas in a brainstorm right i don't mind saying everybody say there's no bad ideas there are bad ideas but that's okay you want a creative space that allows for that and you can view hallucinations the same thing you need to understand that it's not the same tool as search it's different well and we will develop new ways of brainstorming while we say okay have we gotten off track Great, push the reset button and AI, chat GPT, will reset its brain much more thoroughly than you will, right? Because we'll remember, we were just talking about this and you said that, We're like, no, no, stop. We said reset. <laughs> so it'll be a new way of thinking, uh, which is good. Maybe, maybe humans will actually begin to evolve. All right, 
Second story is robots. You know, the two things we love most here are AI and robots. So we're, we're linking to an article about the absolute explosion of robots that you're about to see. There's going to be a new factory in Oregon to mass produce humanoid robots, meaning they're bipedal and they, you know, not necessarily that they look like people, but they walk around like people. And it's not just that one company. Other companies are uh, doing the same thing. You've probably all seen the Boston Dynamics dog that walks like a dog and can, you know, dance and uh, flip backwards and all that kind of stuff. Um, aside from dancing, these robots are going to be literally next generation interacting with human beings. And if you have any clients who are in manufacturing uh, and in some cases customer service, this may be something that you're going to have to uh, work with in your organization. So it's really, I think it's quite interesting. There's so many uses for this. I'm not sure why we want them to walk and talk like humans, except that maybe it'll make us feel safer. But I think it'll be a cool new technology when I see a robot walking across my front yard and stepping on my flowers instead of a human uh, delivering the mail. I'm not visiting Westworld. <laughs> I don't know about you. I mean, it's <laughs> look, so it's an interesting point about like, do they need to look like humans? Because by the way, you know, like we've got an iRobot Roomba in the house and there's one that does not need to look like a human pushing a vacuum. I am completely fine with it looking like a, di uh, a disc that, <laughs> that the cat you know, can zips ride. around the house. Ours don't. <laughs> I've tried. Um, uh, but, you know, like th there's there's an element of like, yes, if that form factor is useful. But what I, I I'll go to the larger point and say, like, I think we are going to start seeing more and more robots. And by the way, powered by some AI, because we can now do a lot of autonomous decisions and can have it do a lot of that, quote unquote, thinking on its own so that it can make basic decisions within parameters and be able to, to do things. This is an accelerated version of the production line of automation that we've seen in, in a lot of different spaces. We should embrace it. Uh, we should do the two parts is understand the implications and the second order effects that go on around it. And by the way, everybody cool consulting opportunity is understanding the impacts of that in your customers and customers businesses. And the second area is, is we need to be careful about understanding how to invest in education and training for workers as society to create those. And I will also observe for employers, you're going to necessarily think about the, the skills you need. You're probably going to need to invest yourself in building some of those those skills into your own teams. See, and Dave, you go to kind of the, where I think the crossroads is in this in this discussion. Do we think of this as humans who are comfortable interacting with a machine, or do we think of this as engineers who are confident that the machine can perform the intended function, right? Uh, you guys aren't surprised that I'm gonna use a movie reference here to draw the distinction. Uh, we had an iRobot movie before it was a vacuum, right? Will Smith, etc. Humanoid robots looked like us, were stronger than us, faster than us, etc. And we got into the discussion of, are we okay with that? But we also had a movie called WALL-E where none of those machines looked like a human. They looked like the function for which they were designed. If you were a sweeping robot, if you were a washing robot, a cooking robot, you were designed to do that. As a human who has lifted many things, 
um, and then developed a bad back as a result of that and, and now is very, very concerned about proper lifting mechanics, is a bipedal robot shaped and, and formed like us the right tool to use to lift a heavy item in a warehouse or manufacturing operation? Or is there a mechanically superior way to design and deploy a machine? Might not have a million cross functions, but it would have perfected the one function that it's trying to do. I kind of think that the future is more functional in robots than it is comfortable, more, 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 you know, the humanoid interactivity. I understand why people go there and I understand where, where people are starting to think of the applications for that. I fear that one will cause so much icky factor reaction where people are like, that was sort of a human, but not as opposed to, I saw the robot going around the floor and it was sweeping up and it and I stepped over it, it was fine, I didn't interact with it, it didn't interact with me, but I knew exactly what it was intended to accomplish. I can think of 10,000 applications on the functional side where I look at my bad back and I go, are we building robots with better backs than we have? Because if not, I don't want to use them to lift heavy things because I could forecast what the outcome of that is going to be. I mean, Ryan, that's the power loader from <laughs> Aliens if we want to go from actual bad back. And and kudos to Ryan for not doing a minority Thank report. God. We didn't mention minority report in this <laughs> entire show. So on the on the warehouse, I do have to so say, many movies. Amazon is actually interested in this in part because... They put in so many robots and they can do so much. And then there's a point at which they have to have a human. Just because of the ability to do certain things requires, you know, two finger two fingers here and five fingers there and a wrist and an elbow. And you know, this may actually fill that gap for them. But I think when you think about the robots, whether it's the, the vacuum cleaner, or if you've traveled to an, an airport in Asia, right? The, the little things that sweep the floor and pick up the dirt and so forth, they are designed to look like a non-human thing that does one function. But if you want customer service, if you want somebody to do something to stand behind a desk and interact with human beings, I think the less it looks like a computer with a screen that doesn't care about you, the better. And the next generation are going to have skin. And that's that's where the creepy factor comes in. <laughs> you have to decide whether you know are you comfortable when your robot has skin. Um, but you know this is literally all going to come to fruition in our lifetimes and probably before the turn of the next decade. Well, and as you say, Carl, the the manufacturing is not theoretical here. This we are tooling factories for the purpose of turning out ten thousand of these things in Oregon in the very near future, and they're not nearly the only company playing in the space. This this is not a concept question. This is okay. It's coming. A. How do you feel about it? B. What are you going to use it for? And then how do we make sure that we actually get the intended effect and not the unintended consequences. And and from the movie iRobot, I will remind everybody, there are three laws. There are three laws of robotics and we have to abide by those things, but uh, we can get into that in much more depth in another conversation. All right, 
Let's dive into topic number three, sirs. Uh, we're going to talk about the future of money in investing in business, specifically in the technology industry, right? If you think of the context of venture capital and private equity, there has been a way that it interacted with startups, scale-ups, and mass market invention of new technologies over the past 10, maybe, maybe 20 years. Uh, we're seeing that it's changing now. As interest rates go up, as money factors get changed significantly, we are now being faced with the question of, could we ever rationalize investing in a company like, for example, Uber, that at the time when it was founded, it had no revenue, it had no profit, it scaled up, it didn't make profit forever and ever, and it was sustained by venture capitalists who were very patient and willing to say, when it's a trillion dollars, then I'll collect my money from it. Are PE and VC players going to be patient like that, or are they going to expect that while we are inventing the future, we also run the business like grown-ups and generate actual profit from operations? Um, money investors in the technology industry. Guys, what do you think the future looks like? I will like? say you have to make a distinction between venture capitalists who basically buy businesses or build businesses to succeed <laughs> and private equity who want to, they've got a whole different model, right? They've got a bunch of money. They collect money when they get, let's say a billion dollars, they buy up a bunch of companies and then they try to make changes within them to maximize payouts. But now they've got a billion dollars worth of uh, something that they can take to a bank and take loans out of two to four billion dollars and now they can go do whatever the hell they want but a lot of that money is used to pay back the investors who were promised 20 40 50 percent and i just think you know that game is so short-lived like people get in and they say i will be here for four years and i will be gone and i need to double my money in that time like if i can't make that happen i'll take my money somewhere else and my problem is with that model, they don't actually care about the service. They don't care about the companies they buy or sell. They don't care about the end users. They don't care about the channel members. They, they literally, all they care about is the payout. And when they leave our industry, which I think they will, uh, they will leave a smoldering mess behind and they will not care about it. And you will not be, as, a, as an IT service provider, you will not be in any financial danger per se but imagine if one third of your vendors simply ceased to exist or were forced to merge with each other or no longer had the relationship that you have enjoyed. Um, I, I don't think it's good news for us and it, 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 can't, it doesn't have to end that way. But right now, looking at other industries, that's the most likely scenario that we're looking at. So... For me, private equity has become one of those areas where I'm enjoying exploring the theses behind each one. And I've, I've come to, to sort of recognize the they are not all the same and sure. they are very different. And they so, for example, Carl, you, you described we all talk about the P.E. playbook, right? That's one particular kind that invests one particular sets of funds, one particular mantra, one particular style. I don't like it. Freely admit, I don't like that. Uh, would encourage people to listen to my interview with Brendan Ballou from the DOJ, who's written a book on the topic and also doesn't like it too, and has lots of good reasons why. 
and that's true in a lot of software vendors. They've done, but some of the services private equity look a little different, and they have that style and several others, right? And what's interesting about PE is because they come in so many flavors, they are also figuring out new, interesting, creative ways to extend their lifespan. So, for example, they are creating new funds that can buy things from the old funds and allow people to, to, to leave, to move around, like... They're good at Excel, everybody. Like they're good at moving things around. <laughs> like so, uh, so understand that not all are created equal. Carl, I think you're right. I think that there will be some some software vendors that change aggressively. I think there will be some services organizations that do. I will be interested to see the competitive factors that come out of that because every time you describe like. Service providers going down, that's always an opportunity for a new provider to do, to be different and leverage in some new way. So I like a competitive space. I distinctly like, will point out that there is private equity I do not think is doing right by anyone other than the shareholders and investors. And I think that's bad for the industry. I'm not convinced it's like Armageddon on everybody. But I do think there will be smoking cratering holes for certain spots step carefully. in the industry. <laughs> See, and I exactly step carefully. My my question always is what is the expertise the money brings to the business? If you are bringing investment, are you simply going to be a silent investor, allow the people who are running it to do more, bigger, faster? because now they have money? Are you going to be a noisy investor and you are going to get involved and change operations because you bring operating expertise within the scope of that specific business? Or do you bring money expertise absent any of the operating expertise and your value is simply, I brought money and my job is increase revenue, decrease cost with zero emotion attached to it so that I can take more money out of this thing. If you bring expertise in my field, and, and I've seen a number of these that have been very successful, people who have been successful in our industry because they were very, very smart and capable at what they were doing, and as a result, accumulated a big old bucket of money and then are turning around to invest that in ways that can extend or, or multiply their intelligence, I think that can work very effectively, right? Like let's bring the brains of the smart slash wealthy people who did this very, very well, and the rest of us could probably benefit from that. When you get outside of that expertise and the money comes from sources that do not know the difference between a, a channel and a TV channel, um, that's a problem and that's going to undermine the essential mission and value prop of the technology that they're getting into. The problem here is it's so lucrative, or as you pointed out, Carl, it has been up until recently so very lucrative to get in. We've attracted investors into the technology space in general and into the channel in specific who do not know their behinds from a hole in the ground when it comes to the technology, the delivery model, the operating model, the value-added channel model. They don't understand any of that stuff, and so they just go, that line item looks really expensive. Let's slash it and see what happens. That's very dangerous, but they made a lot of money because money was just multiplying. 
now that the rates of return are down, now that the cost of money is significantly higher, I think grown-ups will take fewer just wild-ass guesses into like, let's put a million dollars here and see what happens. I think they will be, for their own safety and sanity, they will be required to test the business proposition. And if they don't understand it, hopefully they will steer clear. Like, there's no guarantees there, but I just feel like the pain is going to be significantly higher for being stupid with your investments. I like the pain being higher. You <laughs> That's a good thing. Well, like, there's a certain degree of like, I mean, I think we're also speculating a little bit that like rates are not necessarily going to re reduce to the levels that they were before. That we may look back and say that period of time was right. an aberration. Free money was a, was a period of time and that's not the norm there should be some rules of the road that create that ability for you know, you can't just do anything because you can't take unlimited risk that is actually kind of healthy for a lot of markets so i think we may be moving to that as we move into 20 i think it would be great if there's a way to to look at the leadership i want people with passion about something I don't care if it's building rockets to Mars or whatever it is. I would love to have people with passion who, you know, and I do like the term, run something like adults. Uh, you know, when you look at the last, uh, the economy of the last 10 years and the 10 years before that and the 10 years before that, there were companies that came and went, you know, 40% or more or less of the Fortune 500 disappears every 20 years. But there's also companies that they went through the last three recessions and they'll go through the next three. The likes of Microsoft, Apple, Intel, HP, Dell, they lead the market by building a long-term business that has no intention of getting out. And if part of your strategy is in two years, three years, six years, I'm out, you have a very different view of what the world looks like and what the future looks like. And the question is, how do we find out? <laughs> Before I go pick a new vendor for this tool, how do I know whether they have any intention of being around in three years before I sign the contract? Well, believe me, Carl, directly in that conversation, we've been doing a lot of work in channel development, partner engagement, uh, partner recruiting and ramping, right? Like there, we've been spending a lot of time in that conversation recently. and. Partners are, I've been very happily surprised at how many of them ask the question specifically, where does your funding come from? Who are the people that are backing the venture? What is the business model for this thing? And what's your exit strategy? Uh, the first time they ask that of a new vendor, the vendor gets a little bit like, well, I never, how dare you? I think it's a perfectly appropriate question. And the fact that people are asking it, that is acting like an adult. We have seen this movie, <laughs> to, use, to use Ryan's movie references. All right, very good. Well, thank you all for being here. We're happy to be doing this, and we're, our goal is now to try to do these quarterly, no promises, but uh, there, there's three of us, and we'll hold each other accountable. So, we, and we like yeah. showing up and riffing with one another. And it, it is, is good fun. fun. <laughs> so... With that, we wish you a great end of year and a great new year, and we will see you in 2024. This has been episode 206 of the Killing It, Killing it. Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. 
Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.